Welcome to Polymathic Being, a place to explore counterintuitive insights across multiple domains. These essays take common topics and explore them from different perspectives and disciplines, and in doing so, come up with unique insights and solutions. Taoism and Proofs of Concept. Design first, then build. Today's topic investigates the failure of so many proofs of concept, minimum viable products, innovation initiatives, and systems in general. The underlying reason might actually surprise you because very often the details look great, the people work together really well, and all of the processes and artifacts were tip-top. It's only when we step back and look at the whole system that we discover that the main failure happened long beforehand, back in design, or the lack thereof. The problem with proofs of concept isn't that they fail, it's that they don't scale. What if I told you that there was a way to increase your project's chance of success by over 100%? That you could change the script on failure to that of learning? That you could address risks proactively so that your team achieves success that scales? All of this is possible, leverages known enablers, and borrows from ancient Taoist philosophy. Many of us have been there. A great idea, a motivated team, and a sponsor who has just approved the project when we weren't expecting it. We've got some visibility, there are some vested interests to prove that we can do it, and so you jump right in and start executing. Soon, the team realizes that the initial ideas of what was possible begin to run into reality. The data is dirty, the tools aren't quite there, and other teams aren't collaborating as well. But you strive for success, and so you narrow your focus, add on a few more assumptions, and continue to execute. Eventually, after a lot longer than expected, and nowhere near the goal you started with, you cross the finish line with your proof of concept. Maybe it even works pretty well, but does it scale? And thus, we run into one of the key failures I've seen with projects. The problem with proofs of concept isn't that they fail, it's that they don't scale. In helping teams conduct hundreds of retrospectives, what continues to emerge in this failure seems shockingly simple. They didn't design first. They fall victim to the programmer's credo. We do these things not because they were easy, but because we thought they were going to be easy. This brings us to the focus of our topic. What's in a design? What is often overlooked that can dramatically improve outcomes? And how can we set ourselves up for success from the start? As a side note, while this can be any sort of project, I'm going to focus on software for this essay. In a quote attributed to Einstein, the importance of design is stated as, if I had an hour to save the world, I would spend 55 minutes defining the problem and five minutes coming up with solutions. In the case of our proof of concept, 55 minutes should be on design and five minutes on the code itself. Yes, this does seem a bit extreme, but it highlights several concepts that are important. Number one, define the problem. Number two, design rigor. And number three, systems modeling and simulation. We'll break each of these down in the next sections to explore some unique idiosyncrasies of each, how they tie together, and what that time spent in what appears to be non-action will actually save an incredible amount of time. Part 1. Define the problem. One of the key elements of operations research, the somewhat niche discipline I call my intellectual home, is to really spend a lot of time defining the problem. We aren't designers in the sense of traditional engineering. We are solutioners, working in really messy, complicated areas in an attempt to provide clarity, 
illuminate key measures of success, and often challenge the very foundation of what we thought the problem was. An adage of operations research we had in my role at Lockheed Martin was, answering the why before the what and how. As we covered in a previous essay on leadership, providing direction, energy, and accountability, the direction requires defining the problem, and defining the problem starts with asking why. As simple as this concept seems, you might be shocked at how much contention this can actually cause. I've been told asking why is disruptive and to just execute. Fundamentally, starting with why is a great way to identify what we do or do not know about the problem. The next step in defining the problem is to make sure it doesn't change on us. As we discussed in systems thinking, there are two key things to focus on here. One, if you think you understand the problem, step back and see if you understand the system. And two, intentionally reframe the problem from multiple perspectives. If the problem statement changes as well, you may not have the right definition yet. Asking why, stepping back and looking at the system, and reframing are three essential steps to truly defining the problem. There is one more I'd like to add that we really haven't covered yet, and this is the addition of urgency. So often, the definition of a problem is tightly coupled to a do-it-now sense of reactive urgency. It elevates a problem's sense of importance and is probably the number one reason why teams fail to spend more time on design. I've seen this manifest from root cause analysis to software development to systems analysis, and the impetus to execute, to just get something down, overrides all other measures. But this time constraint is rarely actually required and can typically be ignored. In dozens of retrospectives, the excuse of urgency looks more like poor insight, borrowing a finding from the lazy leader, often industriousness and in execution, creates failure. Instead, applying the Taoist concept of Wu Wei helps break the insistence on action and provides the opportunity for flow. Wu Wei is about as counterintuitive as you can get because this is not inaction. It is intentional non-action. A great example of Wu Wei is what we call a tactical pause in the military. It means in the height of a combat situation, you might intentionally do nothing in order to let the situation develop more. For example, if I'm on a mission to conduct a recon and an enemy unit is attempting to find me, they may perform their own recon by fire, which means they shoot into an area that they think I might be at. If I return fire, which seems logical at first, I confirm my location and lose my advantage of stealth. If instead I hunker down and take intentional non-action, the enemy has no confirmation and I can let the situation develop more while maintaining an ability to bring in other resources such as aircraft or artillery. Applied back to defining the problem, just like we reframe the problem from multiple perspectives to see if the problem statement changes, we can also shift the problem in time to see if it changes to determine its effect on the proposed solution. A great question to answer is whether not taking action now has any effect on the problem or worse, a negative effect. Sometimes we frame this question as, what if I do nothing? Because with a solid understanding of the problem, in time, we can confidently step into the design. Part two, design rigor. 
Even with a solid problem definition, we often like to jump into the design and start putting together ideas to work towards a solution. Yet, in line with Wu Wei again, we need to understand the systems and structures we'd like to support our design with. For instance, there are a few key things that can completely change the way in which you execute concepts, like applying risk-driven and client-driven iterative planning, or decision or learning point planning, or design structure matrices, and many more. What's important to consider is that these techniques must be applied proactively, and they have significant capabilities to unlock incredible value in your design, such as with risk-driven, client-driven iterative planning, it's a design process by which high-risk items are front-loaded into the plan to ensure faster feedback in order to adapt or change the proof of concept. Decision and learning point planning is a foundational reframing of execution that completely inverts the risk of failure into learning and decision opportunities. If we think of a design as a process of learning, not milestones, it changes the way we think of executing completely. And design structure matrices. This tool is not new, but is very overlooked. It is a core foundation for creating modular and composable systems while looking at how features and infrastructures work together to avoid bubblegum and bailing twine designs. All three can be applied to a design, and to achieve full success, they require understanding what you want the design to look like to start with. As silly as it sounds to say this, so many of our proofs of concept look like a builder starting a house with no blueprints. Ensuring design rigor through proper process and tools is essential to true success. A last thought on design rigor is to ensure you are capturing your system's architecture and requirements at the system's level. Following a process like the Open Group Architecture Framework, or TOGAF, or the Department of Defense Architecture Framework, DODAF, among others, sets the stage for the final element of design, which is modeling and simulation. Part 3 modeling and simulation. There's one final consideration that is essential to system design and proofs of concept, and that is modeling and simulation. This is an essential step for designs in ambiguous solution space with more unknowns in both design and performance metrics. Modeling and simulation will not be successful without applying the first two aspects of design that we've discussed, as you'll create a pseudo-design based on a properly formed problem definition and crafted from the documented architecture. Properly applied, a modeling and simulation environment allows the hypothesis testing of ideas in support of the decision or learning point planning as discussed earlier. It allows experimentation of new ideas, facilitates defining improved performance indicators, and helps ensure that features avoid common bugs that can emerge from a lack of systems understanding. Modeling and simulation is a much deeper topic on its own, so suffice it to say that designs that apply modeling and simulations dramatically outperform designs that don't. They are more likely to stay on schedule, scope, and budget, and are much more likely to be integrated into multiple systems on completion. Modeling and simulation doesn't have to be incredibly high fidelity either. It can be tailored to the decisions and learning points that were previously defined and create a path for rapid, iterative execution before designers are too tied up in coding. In conclusion, designing first, while obvious when saying it, actually happens much less than you'd think. The push to produce code, 
demonstrate value, and keep moving create incentives to compress or even skip the process entirely. In almost all the retrospectives I've conducted, whether it be code, hardware, factory improvements, business development processes, or military combat missions, a common theme that emerges is that they were all biased towards action, and they all failed because of it. We'd often be told that this was an opportunity to build the plane while flying it, as if this was both intelligent and logical. Tying all these concepts together, the solution begins to take form where through proper problem definition, we can create design rigor, changing the script from milestones to learning and creating strong systems design. With these designs, we can quickly iterate through modeling and simulation to test our hypotheses and create effective code. All of this is wrapped up with what we learned with Wu Wei, where the right answer is to spend that 55 minutes defining the design and only five minutes writing highly effective and composable code modules that can solve the right problem, thereby creating proofs of concept and design that don't fail and scale long into the future. I'd love your thoughts, feedback, and experiences with this topic. How often do you run into this problem? And what have you done to resolve it? Thanks for listening to Polymathic Being. We'd love for you to subscribe on Substack at polymathicbeing.substack.com, where you can read, comment, and share these essays. <laughs>